0: Hi guys, welcome to today's podcast. My name's James Corsier and we're all about helping people become financially free so you can focus on what you really want from life. Today I've got three people, all of which are on various stages of their property journey, all looking to become financially free in the near future and using their money to work for them to speed that up. Property is one of their key vehicles that they're looking to use. And as I can say, as I said, they're all on different stages. So I feel this video will be very helpful for those that are planning to go into property or on those initial stages. We've got Adam that already owns his own residential property, but is looking to move into buy to let to speed things up. We've got Greg, who's already got the funds to move in to buy to let property but is unsure how best to do it. And then we finally, we've got Roddy, who's already got a couple of properties uh, to, uh, to be used as investing, but also is looking to take on a few more to speed things up as well. Guys, welcome all to the show. And I think let's just get straight into it, Q&A. So let's dive deep. I think first, let's start with Adam. And then I think let's just kind of move organically from there.
1: So, Sammy, my wife and I, as I've just alluded to, we don't want to sell this flat. We live in Hackney Wick. Um, We want to buy a second family home outside of London. And we'd like to keep hold of this property and rent it out. One, because we're aware of the fact there's a lot of investment in this area. The V&A Museum coming, the BBC Studios just over the roads. I think there's going to be a lot of growth here and it makes sense, especially everything that's going on with COVID. To hold on to this property as as long as possible and and capture some capital gains. Now, the what we're f- finding is that the second home costs, are, or the second home stamp duty and so and so on and so forth are are significant. Um, and I was wondering whether there was any sort of workarounds, perhaps transferring our London flat to. My limited company, I've got a limited company. I, I, I am fully employed, but I also have a limited company that I, I use for freelance work. Um, so um, that is my main question. What is the most um, efficient way for us to try to purchase a second home and convert this one to buy to let? Yeah. Big one, big question.
0: Yeah, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Nice big question to start. So I remember seeing this one. So I, I had a look at all of your questions before. Um, and so, so firstly, I'll say when a lot of your questions came up were very tax specific. Understandable because tax in this country is very complicated, certainly when it comes to property. Not only that, but it, it is always changing. Every year, the tax law changes. So I know a lot of people say this and it, and it can be frustrating when you hear it but I'm going to carry out all of what I say with, you know, you need to chat, chat to a tax specialist and and double check these things. One, obviously, you know, naturally I'm going to do that to protect myself. But secondly, like it is definitely the right thing to do. The Massive impact, you know, when it comes to tax from a cost impact, making one decision over another, but also getting it wrong. Right. And suddenly realizing you're in a spot of bother after you've made certain decisions Or just not doing the right thing and then suddenly being caught with tax penalties and so on, right? A lot of people, when I say that, they say, well, you know, it's easy for you, James. You've got a whole load of properties. It makes sense to have a team of people around you. It's hard when you're just starting into it to do that. So I totally get that. Best place to start is with an accountant. If you're doing stuff like this, if you're buying properties to invest in, you should always have an accountant. Even if you think you know what you're doing and you can do it, I always still think you know, let people stick to what they're good at and what they specialize in. And if you're resisting that, just think, how much is my time worth? How long is it going to take me to do these types of things? How confident am I? And so, you know, from that point of view, am I sure it's still worth doing it myself or getting someone else involved? Okay. Start with your accountant, speak to them, double check with them. If you're not getting the right answers, you should either get them to refer a tax accountant or the tax specialist. But ideally, you want to be having an accountant that like specializes in property. That's the best way, because then they can they can wear those two hats, the tax kind of hat and the accountancy hat. All right. You should still know what you're doing yourself. One, because you're going to be able to guide them and be able to almost like due diligence them. It's ultimately your decision, your situation, right? Like if you if you get an accountant to do some things and they get it wrong, okay, it's kind of on you still. It's, it's you that's going to get the penalties. You can't just blame your accountant as much as you'd like to. All right. So I'll stop with that kind of little side spiel, but I think that's a really important one. But putting that to one side. Okay. So you have a property already and you want to buy a second one. Can I get around that by avoiding this kind of having to pay more stamp duty on my second property? The short answer is, unfortunately, no. Pretty much all of the workarounds people have thought of have been removed. Essentially, they look through companies. So when you go to buy that second property, if you already still own this property, even through a company, you're going to pay the additional stamp duty costs. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came up for me when, when you asked that question, Adam, was, you know, why do you want to do that? I'm, I'm picking up that, you know, you think it's a good investment place because of all of the stuff in that area and so on. I get it. But you always want to look at it from an opportunity cost point of view. What are all your different options? And what are all the financial benefits of each of those? And what are all the kind of qualitative things? So when it comes to then buying that second property, just look at all your different options and then just cost them out when it comes to financial investing, it, w- there can be a lot of numbers involved and it can be very confusing and a bit overwhelming. Just getting it down on paper and then running it through, the numbers don't lie. That whatever is the best financially is the best one, assuming mm-hmm. all the other stuff is, is equal. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Can that put answer the question of the other bits you want me to?
1: No, it does. It, it does. And actually... Thinking about it, the, the the maybe the right approach would be to sell this, buy the second buy our buyout of London because it's going to be a larger mortgage, and therefore stamp duty percentage is going to be higher, and then use any excess deposit that um, that we can or equity that we can um, um we can access to buy elsewhere, it, and and as a result the actual percentage value of the second home stamp duty would be significantly lower because the 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 property price would be
0: much lower exactly and also have a view now but definitely like reassess periodically and when you go to buy because things change so substantially you know at the moment the returns in london have dropped more than most other areas because of COVID. Mm-hmm. London, you've got the Airbnb market has completely died because no, no tourism. Uh, many students are not living in London. Commercial space has taken a huge dive because no one's like working in the centre of London. So there's a massive impact on the property market here. Is that permanent? Is it temporary? What's the long-term implications of that? We don't know. People have a view. So update your view, I guess, is my last thing I'll say on that. Cool. Nice.
2: You're
0: welcome. All right, who's
2: next? I can jump in. Uh, Seeing as Roddy's on mute and (laughs) laughing. Um, Yeah, James. I think um, starting off maybe uh, sort of zoomed out for me because I am at this sort of earlier stage than, than the other guys. I think it'd be great to know Really, just how you think about um, uh, approaching. So, property is one asset class amongst others, and how you how you approach, you know, splitting the money that you do have across those different uh, the different options. Because the reason I ask that is, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I do have cash, you know, privately and cash within a limited company. Uh, some of, uh, and also then some of which has been invested in the stock market, etc. But now I'm at this point where I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, and I'm sure this is based on, you know, dependent on what your your outcome is. But I'd be keen to hear from you, like, how do you approach splitting the the capital and the you know the money you do have across the different asset classes, and where does property play the role uh, in that for you? It is a very good question. So,
0: you tend to get like two schools of thoughts when it comes mm. to dealing with different asset classes. You've got one school of thought, which is effectively diversify, protect yourself in case one area does badly. So, invest in lots of different things and invest in different things that are uncorrelated or weakly correlated. So, you know, if bonds go up, generally speaking, that tends to not correlate with when. Uh, the stock market goes up and so on. Mm. So those thing, So you're more likely to have a situation where your, everything you own isn't going down all at once, which is mm. when things can be pretty painful. So the other side of things is to really focus and dive into one area. And the benefit from that is that you can really get very knowledgeable on it, very experienced, mm. and then you can rise above other people and distinguish yourself and by doing that you're often able to uh, get a higher return than other people you can be better at understanding what the risks are and mitigate those Uh, you can kind of almost protect yourself by just doubling down i'm a believer in effectively both you know boots and braces belts and braces rather so i diversify across many different areas because you never know what's going to come in the future. Okay. But at the same time, I like to invest in specific areas that I feel I can distinguish have myself. knowledge
2: on or have. Okay. Mm. Uh,
0: when I, in, in anything, I always look for three things. One, am I passionate about it? Because if I'm passionate about it, I'm naturally going to want to spend time and energy in that area and do well at it now and in the future. And that's going to carry me through. That's going to pull me through to really doing well. Secondly, an area that I'm just naturally good at. Okay. Money investing naturally good at property naturally good at. So it lends to me and then thirdly is it is it an area that is just generally in need so are there fundamentals within that specific area that i think is going to do well property Mm -hmm. i think it does so for me it hits all three and so it just makes sense for everybody else may not be the same answer right it might be something else okay so i would start with that and then i would look to bring the two together so a lot of people, when they, when they come to me and ask questions, they always often talk about all these risks that are coming up. They read articles and say, oh, people think the property market's going to crash next year or um, what about if interest rates go up and so on. And I get that. You never know what's going to come up in the future. The way I protect against that is one, learn myself. If I'm passionate about it and good, and trust that I can be good at it, I'm going to really get a good understanding of that area and that will develop confidence. Secondly, I find specific people that I respect, trust and believe in. And if they are saying certain things that support where I'm going, then I'm going to be much more confident. I much mm. prefer following specific people than just news generally because news is about selling article or selling attention and so it's really not about the quality of the information it's just whether you're going to read it or not so i i pretty much ignore most news Mm -hmm. Uh, and then lastly i make my situation in such a way that i can deal with issues if they come up and really big issues so what i do is i plan worst case scenarios i think well what if interest rates go up what if the property market crashes in those circumstances, I think, well, can I deal with that? It's going to hurt. I'm going to financially be hit by it. But will I be okay? Will it bankrupt me or not? And if certain scenarios that could happen could wipe me out, I'm, not, I'm either not going to go down that path or yeah. I'm going to take steps to protect against that. And by being able to do that allows me to take those risks. Okay. Mm. Now, bringing it back full circle to the area of diversifying, effectively, I focus particularly in property. I do that because I feel I'm good at it and I'm able to get a, a much higher return mm. on it. Secondly, property is an area where the more work you put in, the better your returns, the better the opportunities are. This is an area that's very important to me, so I prioritise it in my life more generally. And as a result, I look for higher returns that other people may not want to do. I look for pathways where I can spend more time to get a better return.
2: I think just to jump in, because I think that's, uh, with the diversification question, It's I guess one element to me is risk and mitigating risk, but I think the other, and maybe Roddy will touch on it later because I know he's been... Uh, you know, getting his elbows dirty on a on a new buy to let and like putting in some 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 graft. I think the question comes from looking at almost time in and return, and just and I know that you know there's uh, passive incomes talked a lot about buy to lets and but I I guess I'm at this early stage where I'm looking at it and going actually property there is quite a bit of work in in property more than maybe some people perceive or maybe more than I did initially. I'm like, now looking at it, it's like, from what I can see, you can sink a lot of time into this and maybe it does need to be a passion. So it's just, you know, at this early point trying to look at, okay, there's this money and where, you know, um, time versus return, you know, where to sort of allocate. Um,
0: Yeah. So that comes back to the question of, what outcome do you want? I always work backwards. Mm. So it's very tempting to go into the tactics. And, and a lot of what we're talking about is the tactics because that's the thing that's most attractive and sexy. And, you know, we want to get, you know, how do we get a better return? How do we do this? How do we do that? But in reality, I'd say for most people, the most effective route to what we want is first, what do we want? What outcome do you want? How much money do you want by when? But even why do you want that much money? What is it specifically you want to be doing in your life, right? So once you've got clear on that, and it's a certain amount of money by a certain time period, you're then thinking, okay, well, what's the most effective way to get to that specific outcome, all right? And there's different options. So property is just one of them. So you've got property, you've got, say, the stock market, you've got portfolio investing, you've got just stick in it, in a savings account and just earning more money building in business there's many different ways we can do it right property is one way okay so we always got to remember that look at it against the other so don't just get caught going down property without first looking at the horizon of the other options if you are going with property you're then thinking about well what are the different approaches within it why i like property in particular is there's so many options within it and it's it's very easy to just to take a different approach that allows you to get a better return by putting more effort in, maybe taking on slightly higher risks, uh, putting more work in or developing more knowledge or skills that you can apply to that area. Property can be done in a way that is relatively low in effort. So if you buy a vanilla property, when I say vanilla, I mean, standard property that we can let to good quality young professionals in an area that is high in demand has for for a very long time been in high demand. So for example, in a capital uh, in a city center of a, of a well-established city within the UK, a uh, good quality property in good condition. You're not having to refurbish it. You can have a good tenant, very little repairs you have a management agent that's going to manage it. In practice, that is going to take very little work to manage. Now, if you buy that type of property, in practice, you're going to get a lower return usually because there's less work, but not fully because the thing is, there's so many different ways you can kind of come at property to improve your return. So it doesn't always mean more work is better return. Does that make sense? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, if I could jump in there,
3: actually, because, yeah, as Greg alluded to, I have uh, on the last property that I just kind of completed on literally two weeks ago, I have yesterday stopped doing it up, as in liquor paint, laying floor, you know, doing all the things that I do actually enjoy doing, but I can do, and it saves me a couple of hundred here, a couple of hundred there, blah, blah, blah. Now, I completely understand that I don't need to do that and I could get somebody else in, but because I'm still quite early doors with my how many properties I have, I want to save as much as I possibly can um, at this stage. I will manage it myself because I don't want to give that 10% management fee. It's another little saving that I will just handle it. If, if it all falls down, then I'll bring in a management service. Now, fast forward a few properties, I won't be doing all this work and I will be giving it to a management company because I hope that they will have a a lower um, percentage that they would charge and it would just make sense and it means I can focus on other things. I'm interested from you, James, somebody at this kind of very, um, the beginning stage, how How much, how much work, where do you think you can scrimp and do it yourself? And where do you think your, your money and your time is best kind of allocated to giving it to the professionals? And, you know, how do you make sure that you maximize the most amount from a property straight off the bat if you're on property one, two, three?
0: Yeah. Okay. So firstly, again, go back to what you ultimately want. Then, what is what are all the options you can do to get there? Sounds like you've picked a path properly. Okay. Is that the full path or the other things there? Get really clear on the whole piece, right? Now, assuming it's purely property, for example, right? You then think, okay, well, what is the best way of this, of picking this path or approaching this path to get what I want? So, you're making a lot of assumptions in what you're saying, what it is so you're saying well, look, I'm just starting, so I need to save every particular pound uh, to accelerate my path. That may well be the case. And often at the beginning, money is more important at the beginning than it is in the end. And, and I definitely agree with that because the reason for that is the compounding curve. So I think one of the main reasons why a lot of people struggle to ever become financially free is because they don't appreciate that concept um, so just very quickly for the benefit a compounding curve is like, I'm just trying to think what's the best way to It's like kind of like that. Right. So at the beginning, your progress towards building up enough money to become financially free is very slow because you don't have very much money built up and also at the beginning, your earning potential is low, but as you progress, right, you have more money to invest and therefore more money allows you to make even more money. And that starts to compound and expand and expand and expand. And towards the end, you, you're like almost surprised by how quickly your wealth increases. It's happened to me. It's happened to many people that I work with. And I think people at the beginning often see that bit and then think, oh, like, what's the point? Nothing's really happening. You know, I'm, why bother doing all this work when I can just spend money and enjoy myself? Okay. Now, the reason why I say that is because it's for that reason that doing a lot of sacrifice early on and saving as much money, earning as much money as possible, investing it in a way where you can improve the return as as much as possible at the beginning, almost like fast tracks that bit. Everybody has to go through it, but you can speed it up through different ways. And what you're talking about, what it allows you to speed it up. Okay, But it comes at a sacrifice. You're having to do a whole load of work in doing that. Now, for some people, that makes sense because they want to do it, they enjoy it. And I think you probably do enjoy it, Ruddy. You've always just got to bear in mind what's the opportunity cost of it. So sometimes people get really stuck doing everything they possibly can to, to save as much money as possible. But by doing that they might be losing other opportunities okay so if i managed all my properties there is no way i'd be able to own all the properties i have okay even early on i only ever really managed one property and that's because for that particular property the it wasn't just i was able to save the management cost but it was because I knew specific things about the market and that particular property where I was able to dramatically improve the overall return on that property. So I knew that if I managed it versus another person overall, I would make far more money, but that's not always the case. So for example, if you're managing a property from another part of the country, you're exposing yourself to certain risks, increasing those risks. So, Can you put a value on that risk? What happens if something goes wrong? Two, do you know all the rules around uh, managing a property yourself, right? Are you you maybe going to get caught out? What happens if uh, something pops up? Like you do something wrong and therefore you're not able to kick out the tenant uh, because they have certain rights, for example, okay? So yes, early on you can take certain risks because, They're like calculated and it helps you speed things up but sometimes if you push too hard uh you may overdo it and find yourself in a difficult situation or without enough time to be able to do the other things that are actually going to move you much further like that third property that help yeah that
3: that does make sense i'm i'm with you i'm with you
0: All right. Any follow-up questions on that, Roddy, or should we move on?
3: No, I think we're good. Um, what was, when you were on your first one, two, three properties, if, if you weren't rolling up your sleeves and painting or whatnot, what, what little tricks and tips did you find that you might be able to advise some people? Or, or what, when you were managing that one property, what holes did you accidentally fall down or you know, what issues yeah. were thrown up?
2: And maybe just to add to that, it'd be great to know, is there anything in your journey, James, where you've spent a, a disproportionate amount of time on that has not really helped that you think is a common kind of you know, mistake people make?
0: Yeah. When you manage your own property, you're emotionally invested. It's one of the biggest issues. So, you know, you're like, ah, oh, what tenant? Should I get in? I don't know about that tenant or... They come in and they raise a question or an issue and then you get totally caught up in it or they're not paying the rent. and It's very distracting, not just in the time you're having to deal with it, but it can just kind of consume all other areas of your life. And I put a high cost and weight to that. And that's certainly one of the biggest things I've learned. Secondly, bad tenants. You know, I think early on, I got very lucky Uh, with good tenants I say lucky I think it was probably because I was all over it like you Roddy you know I I wanted to do everything I possibly could to accelerate because I knew speeding up that initial stage would allow me to get through to the, the really interesting numbers and so I spent a lot of time finding really good quantity tenants and building relationships with them like these people would probably consider them my friends right and that they wouldn't do anything to to screw me over or screw over the property. And that, that brought with it a lot of goodwill. Okay. But then what happened is I first had a tenant who was effectively crazy, right? She, she was doing stuff and saying things that just didn't make sense. And I wasn't able to rationalize with her. I wasn't able to kind of uh, do the, not do the right, not do the right thing, but effectively, When you get a a tenant like that, you can't just have a, a common sense conversation and say, look, we can't do this, you can't do that or whatever. And then when you can't do that, then you run into real issues. And then that's when you're having to start rely on the legalities around letting property. And you don't really want to go there, but you also want to be doing it in a way where you can rely on that in case you get issues. So one, Always look for good quality tenants. Okay. Unless you've got a specific type of property where, like, that's it's a very specific approach you're taking, which I highly doubt you guys are going to be doing. Go with good quality tenants. You're going to remove 99% of your issues. But organize things in such a way so that if you do run into an issue, you have protection. Okay. But the last thing I'll say in terms of managing property is. When managing a property, it, it can kind of be all-consuming. It can be fine when all's going great, but as soon as you get that one bad tenant, it all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it can completely take over your life. Right? And you won't know that until you get into that situation.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah, okay. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I do reference my tenants, you know, like landlord and employees and all that kind of um but I have definitely seen a change from my first to my second of how I interact uh, sorry my first my second property how I'm starting to interact with the, the tenants that are passing through and um, so yeah without wanting to become heartless I know that's not what you're telling us to be James uh because I know you have a heart but um <laughs> yeah I I I do hear where you're coming from. The second that it all goes wrong, legality.
2: And, and is that kind of where the, you know, the 10% you're paying to a a company that's managing all of the the tenants and all of those, you know, documents that's, they would just handle such a situation like that with the James, like with the one you just got into that you mentioned.
0: Exactly. So having a good agent is really important. I mean, that's like one of the most important decisions you can make. So, Okay, where to start on that? We can move into how to find properties and all of that good stuff.
2: Yeah, you don't need to deep, deep dive into that. That was just all on the fly. I, I'll
0: say it. The reason why I'm kind of just quickly referencing that is because finding a good agent solves a lot of problems. So you should always find a good agent. Only go with one that when you speak to them, what they're saying and so on, you trust, you need to trust them. If you don't trust them, then you're going to cause issues. In fact, it's going to be worse because not only are you not, man- not managing it yourself, okay, so you, uh, so, so you think it's going to be easier because they're going to deal with it. But if they're not doing it right, they can get you into situations, but it's still your property, still your rent that you're not receiving, or it's still your property that is being damaged and so on. Okay, So it's really important to get a good quality tenant uh, agent. But assuming they're a good, good agent, this is what they do day in, day out. They know all the rules and regulations. They know how to deal with uh, difficult tenants. They know how to vet tenants. Yeah. And so in practice, in most situations, they will be able to do it more efficiently than you. So you've got to think to yourself, why do I think I'm going to do a better job? And that's why the only situation where I actually managed it for me was because there was a wider piece Where I knew actually for a number of reasons I was going to get a much better return on that property. Okay. Last thing I'll say as well is, doing it yourself, buddy, like what you're doing, allows you to very quickly learn a lot. Yeah, you're kind of learning on the go, so that is a huge benefit in that. You know, don't underplay that. You know, you're having to on the ground learn how to find a tenant and deal with tenants and do it in an efficient way so that inevitably when you move to letting it out through management companies you know what they should be doing and you can kind of ask certain questions and depending on their answers know whether they're good or not
3: yeah 100 percent. We, are we allowed to plug services and places that i have actually done that through because yeah. i went through open rent that's who i did my with my first property and certainly for england they've been great turns out they don't cater to Scotland, so that was a lovely little speed bump there uh, of the last couple of weeks. Um, when you say find a good agent, is that for multiple properties in multiple cities across the UK, or is that cert- you know certain to one region? You know,
0: um, yeah. So I will always look for for an agent that is specialises in that area. I do work with one agent that is nationwide. And I do use them occasionally, but it's more for if one of properties already like kind of ongoing and I, and I kind of have a tenant established, I will bring them on board. But for most properties I own, what I'll do is right, I use an agent for the whole process. Okay, Because an agent in that area, a letting agent in the area you're looking to buy. So I buy all over the country. Okay. So I have to rely on people on the ground in that area who has knowledge. Okay. So when I find a property that I like, okay, I will call up multiple letting agents. You know, I'll call like 10 agents uh, because every time I speak to them, I will ask them loads of questions. What do you think of this property? Do you think it's a good price? Uh, What are the tenants like in this area? How long does it take to find a tenant? Uh, what do you think what works do you think needs to be done on this property what kind of rent do you think i can expect do you think there's any risk of them not paying the rent? i'll ask i will drill into these guys right i will glean all that information from them and when i speak to like 10 agents you can triangulate so when you speak to one you're like well i don't know this guy could just be saying whatever but when you speak to 10 now i'm not saying you need to speak to all 10 you speak to three or four but the more you do, the better. And you're going to get a lot of value and a lot of information from that. And when you start to hear the same things, then you know that is true. When you're hearing it from one, then you can kind of discount it. It's a very powerful way to find out. So, for example, most of the properties I buy, I don't even go and view them myself. A lot of people think that's crazy. But the way I protect against that is by having multiple people go view that. Just a,
2: a quick question on that yeah. exact topic, James, while we're on it, what can, because that makes a lot of sense. You put the effort in, you speak to, you know, multiple yeah. uh, agents, they and triangulate. Is there anything else you do when buying a property, let's say in a, an area of England, you, you're not going to visit, you're going to buy a place there to, but for, for letting out? Are there any other sort of tips and tricks that you do to help, sort of make that a success having not visited and sort of sussed it out and really understood that location and area.
0: So you're kind of tying a few things in there. So in property, there's different strategies you can take and it depends on your strategy. So I, I, I do a number of different strategies and what I do in terms of finding a property and then convincing me myself that it's worth buying that property will, did, will vary depending on the strategy so I have I buy properties for Airbnb. Okay. That is a specific strategy. How I find those properties is very specific. I also buy properties that are below market value. So I it's more about finding uh, a without oh, okay, going okay. I'm trying to think how much to go into these details. So I'll, I'll stick at the high level first. So Airbnb. The low market value properties, so at a discount to what they're actually worth. And then finally, HMOs. And then finally, last one would be kind of your standard buy-to-let that I believe will appreciate in value. Okay. Separate to that, there's how do you find a specific area? Now, looking for what area will depend, again, on what your strategy is. So there's general information that i use in terms of how i pick an area this is like a general philosophy on the property cycle at the moment i believe certain areas are going to do better in the future from a capital appreciation point of view so i will use that to factor in where i want to be looking into okay how do i simplify this because because i'm conscious that because i take a lot of different approaches it can get quite complicated but effectively i'm thinking Why do I I want to buy this property? Well, I'm doing it because I want to maybe make money from the property increasing value in the future by getting money each month, for example, okay? So let's take an example. I want to buy properties that hit as many things as possible at the same time. And the reason I do that is so that if one doesn't happen, I have other things that are going to benefit. So one particular approach is I buy properties in Liverpool. Now I buy properties in Liverpool because I believe in that area, they will have strong capital appreciation in the future because of the the property cycle. And we can go into that in more detail if you want me to. But effectively, because there's a strong potential there, I believe that I will make money from the increasing in value okay now generally speaking people make the most money in property from prices rising in value not from rental income so if you get that right you're going to make far more money that way so that's why i often focus on that but when i look at a property in a particular area then i'm looking for other things so if i find a property say in liverpool i'll i use a a kind of a spreadsheet which I can share with you guys. I've got it kind of shareable. I, I did a video that linked to it before that as you put a whole load of information in for a particular property and then it will bring out kind of the return on investment each month. Okay, so income coming in versus all the costs associated with it. And so I'm looking for a certain return. If there's a strong return on investment there, even if I'm not getting the level of capital appreciation I was expecting. I'm still going to get that good positive cash flow. Where you run into issues is where sometimes what's happened in the past is where people have been obsessed with property prices going up. They bought properties with very low uh, cash flow or actually negative cash flow, assuming prices are going to go up. So one area which I know uh, some of you guys are looking at or have invested in is Edinburgh. Now, Edinburgh, very popular area, uh, and prices are appreciated very strongly there. Uh, it's the biggest city, obviously, in Scotland. But because prices are very high relative to income, then you can have a very narrow return on investment, a very narrow, narrow cash flow. You can, which then puts you at more risk to say interest rates going up, okay, or rent going down because of something happening like COVID. There are ways to deal with that by pushing up that return on investment, like I know some of you guys are doing, like HMO. So renting each room separately allows you to get more money overall from the property. And then secondly, taking advantage of the summertime, Airbnb and so on, because by doing that, you are effectively far increasing your return over those months because it's a very popular time to go. Does that make sense?
3: Yes, (laughs) <laughs> that does make sense um airbnb has been mentioned a couple of times so i do have a, a, a some questions for short term lets and how you approach them i think um you know attention needs to be given to an airbnb to make it look and feel a lot nicer and be pretty and have lovely lamps. And, you know, because if you get a four-star review, you're dead. You know, it's got to be five or nothing. Now, I assume that you have a, a management company that takes care of all of that and the keys and the cleaning and the bookings and the chat. Is that correct? And, and um, ha- how difficult is it to kind of get the ball rolling in terms of furnishing it to the right level without basically putting yourself out of pocket because you've bought a far too expensive oak bed, for instance, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think all of what I said around managing a property, I would like times 10 with Airbnb. Personally, I would never manage an Airbnb property early on when Airbnb first started. Okay. I did it. I did it in a property that I owned. I kind of lodged through Airbnb effectively. And it was so easy. People literally wrote essays to you, begging to stay in your property. It was amazing. You could, you could pick your ideal tenant, ideal timeframes. I wanted like long-term stays. I met some really interesting people, one of which is one of my best friends now that came and stayed with me, okay? That's because it was new and, and there was all this demand, but there was no supply because people were nervous about moving into the Airbnb space and renting out their properties that way. Now it's established and it is a very mature market. And it is almost uh, mostly dominated by professional managing agents. And if you are not doing it professional like that, I think it's very difficult to survive. Primarily because people are very demanding now in when they rent an Airbnb. And if certain things aren't in place and dealt with, you'll get a negative review. And as soon as you get a couple of negative reviews, that can it can completely kill your, 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 the whole market for you, right? You just won't be shown. Or, as soon as someone sees one negative review, they're just not going to stay with you, especially early on, right? Also, what they're expecting is very quick communication, all of these various things. And so if you've got a life, which I presume you have, then... When something comes in, you've got to reply to that straight away. Okay, You've got to drop things. Now, sometimes that's completely fine, but in other situations, when you're on holiday, for example, whatever, might be more difficult. So I'm sure there's a way through it, and there's a lot of people doing it in an amateur way. I think that is difficult, and it will continue to be more difficult, and especially in areas where it is a very dense market like Edinburgh, for example, maybe London, any big city where there's a whole load of people doing it, even more so. Now, when you've got a time during the summer, say, in Edinburgh, and everybody's just desperate for a place, to be honest, anywhere that's available in Edinburgh is probably going to rent. So that could factor into your considerations, but take that with a pinch of salt and wouldn't rely on it. The th- last thing I'll say is if you're going to get somebody to manage your property for Airbnb, you need to find someone good, okay? Because they're way more involved. And there's two main ways a person can manage your property for Airbnb. One is an organization through their account, okay? And they manage your properties through their account. The other way is that they will do it through your account. Now, there's pros and cons to both. A lot of the, the independent ones, the kind of maybe cheaper ones, I don't know. I don't want to be too typecasting, but effectively, if they're doing it through your account, it allows you so that if in six months time, a year, whatever, you want to take that off them, okay, and still have all your reviews and so on that they've built up, you can take it back off them because it's still your account. If you use their account, you can't because it's their account. You have to start again, so to speak. So on the face of it, that sounds great. The trouble with it is there's no, there's no investment from them. What they can do is they can take your property, give it a go. If it works great, they'll run with it. But if it doesn't, it's, it's no bother to them because it's not their account. So if you're using somebody else's account and that's a really established account with a lot of, listings and those listings are very um well reviewed then one that is a very good sign that you're going to uh, be in a similar situation um but also it's kind of protecting you because they don't want to damage their reputation by managing a poor property for you you follow so i would i would uh, always with that
2: second one but there's pros and cons of both